the book of Ecclesiastes. It takes its name, you know, from that very first verse. The words of the preacher. Ecclesiastes is the transliteration of the Greek word for preacher. It is a translation of the Hebrew word koaleth, one who assembles people that he might deliver a message. We saw last week that this book is the words of the one shepherd, chapter 12, verse 11. So we have to disagree with one of the very popular reference Bibles that is, I happen to like very highly, but in this particular place we have to disagree with them because they say that this is the wisdom of the natural man. In no way. This is revelation from God, just as the book of Romans is revelation from God. Here are the words of the one shepherd. We notice, too, that this book is concerning life here and now under the sun. It is, you don't take this book and go to somebody and try to show them the way to go to heaven from this book. It doesn't tell you. This book does not tell you how to get eternal life. This book does not even give you what the book of Ephesians does, how that as Christians you are to walk in the heavenlies with Christ. This is a very earthy book. It's right down here on this earth where the rubber meets the road. This is a book concerning everyday life as it's lived today. The, book of the premise of the book is vanity of vanities, and we saw that the word here emphasizes, as we saw in Psalm 144, verse 4, man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Life can be, as some people would interpret it, empty and vain, vanity of vanities, but the emphasis is that life is all too short. We saw that this book also contains goads, that is, prods to prod us and motivate us, moving us out of dead-end streets and into the mainstream that God wants us to walk in our lives. We saw, too, that this book contains nails, tent stakes, to which we can tie our lives, uh, the veritable truths of God that are unchanging, and to which we can tie our lives. You know, it's very much like Jesus was saying, the man builds his house upon a rock. If some of you were watching TV not long ago when they were describing the storms, you know, it was shocking to see those homes just washed away by the waves because they were built on sand. You see? Men say that there is nothing to really build life upon. Jesus said there's a rock himself. The book of Ecclesiastes points out to us various stakes of truth that we can tie our lives to. Then, of course, you have the major principles of this book given to us. That if we are to stay off of dead-end streets, if we are to walk in the ways that God wants us to walk with God's Son, we must fear God. We must keep His commandments. 
We must trust in his judgments, his justice. Now today's lesson is really a continuation of the first section of this book, which has to do with Solomon's search for life under the sun. And we've entitled the subject, Life by One's Wits or by Grace. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Dear precious Heavenly Father, we cry out to Thee. We thank Thee that You are the source of all life, that You have given us this book, that this life here on this earth is Your gift to us, and You want us to live it, and You have shown us how to live it. You created man. You made him good upon the earth, and then man sought out his own inventions and has got himself all tied up in dead-end streets. You have shown us in this book how to extricate ourselves from these and to find our way to walk in that narrow path that leadeth to eternal life. And we pray that our hearts will be open to receive your word this morning, and we will see the wisdom of walking not by our wits, but by thy grace. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. This message began really last week in the first 11 verses of this chapter, which has to do with the pattern of life as was observed by the apostle. By the way, I appreciate the notes of some of you concerning the desire to have overheads. And we'll try to do that for you and uh, hope that you'll be of advantage to you. And we saw that in verse 11, Solomon pointed out that each man leaves the profits or the accomplishments of his life to his next generation. He doesn't get to use them. He leaves them to the next generation. And Solomon contrasts this with the actions of nature. For example, the fact that the sun and the wind and the water of earth serve faithful, faithfully successive generations, while man's personal achievement is simply wearisome, repetitious, and soon forgotten. Now Solomon says he's been observing this. And then he wanted in his own life to search it out, to find out exactly what is this business of life. Excuse me. I've got a, I have a system here that works better than this one. As I told you, they got me behind this little thing here. <laughs> I lose papers. But we're talking about the pursuit. And in beginning with verse 12, Solomon takes and makes a test of life. Notice he talks first of all about this method. In verse 12 and 13, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. See, that's his position. 
By the way, the position of a tester is very important. If I were to take a certain cough syrup and tell you, hey, this helped me, see, that's one man's opinion. But if a reputable testing service tested that cough syrup out on, shall we say, a million different people and came back and say, said that it helped a, a 90% of those people, the position of that tester is much more valuable than my test. And he's pointing out his position. He says, I'm the king. I had access to a way of life that will really put it to the test. Then he pointed out his possessions. Look at verse 13. He says, I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under the sun. There are two things here. First of all, as king, he has the wealth necessary to make the tests. And secondly, as the king to whom God gave this special gift of wisdom, he had the IQ necessary for the test. After all, when a certain company, a certain laboratory is making a test, the first thing I want to know is do they have any smart people in taking the test? See? After all, if they're all dummies like I am, then I'm not going to trust them too much. Solomon says, I have wisdom for this. God gave me the wisdom, and I've used that wisdom, and I've used my wealth to take this test. And then he pointed out his program, and it's very interesting there. Would you look at it in verse 13? I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. That word set in my mind is actually the word for heart. He said, I put my heart to the task. I used the very center of my being and I unconsciously I sought out this test. He said, I tested it. I went out and sought. I dig deep to find out the facts. I explored it. I went to every possible avenue to discover the truth. This is the thing that I did. If you'll turn with me, please, to chapter 2, verse 3. I want you to see the importance of this. Notice in verse 3, he says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body while my mind was guiding me wisely. He said, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. He didn't just go off half-cocked in this examination and testing. For example, when he tested wine, he didn't just, you know, pour it down his throat like a drunk. Not a bit of it. He let his mind control him. He used his mind. He used ingenuity. He planned his tests and carried out his tests and controlled his tests and took the proper data and is here presenting it to us. Now, he faced a problem. For look at the end of verse 13. Now, those of you that have a the New American Standard, you notice it says sons of men. Those of you that have the King James Version, it says sons of man. And if you were reading in the Hebrew, you'd read it, you'd read it this way, sons of the man. 
He's talking about Adam, of course, the sons of the man. And that forces us back to remember that God put Adam on the earth. And one of the things that God said to Adam, he said, is I want you to subdue the earth. Search it out. Understand it. Learn how to control and manipulate your environment. And then remember the method that God gave him. God came down once every day to walk and talk with Adam. That was his plan. He wanted man to understand his environment and to control his environment. And God came down with Adam every day and took him for a walk and said, now, Adam, I want you to learn about this today. And he said, see that flower? And he began to explain the flower to him. And he said, you see that rock formation? And he began to explain that rock formation to him. And he said, you see this substance? And he began to explain that substance to him. This was the great plan that God had for man. Man was going to explore and understand his universe and learn how to live in his universe and how to move through his universe and control his universe, and God was going to teach him how. How wonderful it would have been if Adam had only stuck by God's plan. We'd be a far, long ways ahead today if Adam had not decided, hey, Lord, I want to do this on my own. But no, he chose it his he chose a do-it-yourself plan. And the result, why, he says, this search to understand, this search to control our environment, this search to learn how to live properly on the earth, it's a grievous task. A grievous task. Oh, how true. You just ask Thomas Edison, as he spent months trying to find out a little filament that would work in an electric light bulb. Ask him about the hours after testing one thing out and testing the next thing out and testing the next thing out. Ask him about the frustration and the grief that came into his life. But he stuck at it. And because he stuck at it, we have an electric light. But it was a grievous task. Man learned long ago that asbestos is a wonderful thing. You know, by using asbestos, you can insulate yourself from heat. Now we're discovering that they who thought they and, and one found a wonderful thing and a wonderful use for a thing called asbestos, they are discovering that they were dooming literally millions of people to a premature death. This business of man searching things out by his own hit and miss method is a grievous task, says Solomon. And he's right. And then notice what he said was the product of it all. There in, in verse 14, he says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. That's part of the grief. He said, there's so much to look at and so few years for me to do it. He says, all is vanity 
and striving after the wind. He said, I have so much to search out, so much to look for. How am I supposed to know what I'm really supposed to do on this earth? I remember a young person coming in and talking with me, and he says, Pastor, what should I do with my life? And he began to run off the things he could do with his life, and he had more fingers, and he had to take his shoes off and use his toes to point them all out. He said, there are so many things. What shall I do? And he was confused by the multitude of things, and he knew he only had one short life to do it in. And Solomon said, why, it's, it's a vanity. It's, it's too brief. It's a striving after wind, this text says. Those of you that have the King James Version, don't get excited. Your version says it's a vexation of spirit. Literally in the Hebrew, it means it's like reaching out to grab something, and instead of getting a hold of it, you get a handful of wind, a handful of air. He says, you're on this earth and you do your work and you, you try to find out things and you reach out, and as you're reaching out, you find your life all too short and you end up with a handful of air. He said, that's all there is to it. And then he gives his proverb. He says, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. He is not saying that we cannot solve our problems. He is saying that within one short lifetime, no one should think that they can solve all the problems. They're just too big. There's just too many of them. There's too much that is crooked. You can't straighten it all out. There's too much that is lacking. You can't supply all of it. And thus he points out his method. He was going to use his great wisdom. He was going to use his great wealth. But the time would be too short for him to be able to accomplish it. And then he went on to point out his first test. His first test, his pursuit of wisdom. He gave this to us in verse 16. Look at it. I say to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I realize that this is all striving after wind. This is all reaching out and ending up with a handful of air. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Solomon made it his business to search wisdom. This was his first love. This was the thing he liked. This is what turned him on. And he went out and he became the wisest man, perhaps the wisest man this world has ever known, certainly the wisest man that ever ruled in Jerusalem as he says here. He gained wisdom more than anybody else. And the result, well, the result is that with much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. The more he learned, the more he discovered that he needed to learn. The more he learned, the more he became frightened. A man came to me and said, what are you folks doing about this uh, atomic energy and these plants that they want to build around here? And I said to him, well, I, I don't know much about that. He said, well, if you did, you'd get busy and do something. He was a scientist who had been working in this year's, in this 
industry for almost all of his life, and he knows about as much as anybody else does about this whole business of atomic energy. And he said, I can hardly sleep now. Now, I didn't know much about it. See, I was able to sleep, but his knowledge of it, see, made it impossible for him. That's what happens with wisdom, you see. You talk to a man who really understands something, he'll tell you, well, I haven't touched the thing. You know about the sophomore in college, don't you? He's the boy you can always tell. He's a sophomore, but you can't tell him much. Sophomore is a fellow who's been exposed to a little knowledge, and he thinks he knows everything. But the man who has, re has gotten really down and gotten a hold of knowledge, he is discovering himself entering into a field that he can't begin to, and with it are many terrors because he has more unanswered questions than answered questions. And so his proverb comes out again. He said, this is a result of my search after wisdom. But Solomon was not only one who stayed and, and worked to learn things. He also pursued pleasure. Notice his purpose, he says there, in chapter uh, 1. You know, look at that. In verse 2, chapter 2, rather, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it was futility. See? I will test you with pleasure, he said. And then look at verse 3, will you please? That should be verse 3, not verse 13. Look at it. He said, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my wine was, mind was guiding me wisely and how to hold and to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their life. He says, I've only got a few years to live, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to enjoy pleasure. And if you'll notice the pleasures he enjoyed there, in verse 2 he says, I said to laughter, it is madness. Oh, be careful with that one, will you please? Laughter is that experience which causes one to laugh, you know, any kind of an experience, a joke, a, a turn of a phrase, an amusing incident, a play that causes one to laugh. He said, I went out and I dug into all those things that, were, that would produce pleasure in me. And he said, it's madness. Now, you know, young people, how you would tra tra translate that verse? You wouldn't translate it that way at all. You'd say, way out, man. That's exactly what he's saying there. Way out, man. My generation would have said, whoopee. <laughs> See? Hey, this is great, this business of laughter. He's not saying it's silly. He's saying it's great. That's what he's saying there. And now notice the next thing he did, he went to, in the King James Version, it says mirth. And, to, and in this version, it says pleasure. He went to that which stimulated him and gave him a pleasant feeling. See, he did whatever turned him on. And then after that, he went to wine. We saw that in verse 3. Look at it, he said. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. 
while my mind was guiding me wisely. Have you ever noticed this? That you start out after pleasure, and when you go out after pleasure, you, you, laugh, you find something that makes you laugh, and oh boy, you enjoy that. But what's staler than last week's jokes? Huh? So what do you do now? Well, you find something else that stimulates you and makes you feel good, and you have pleasure, and that lasts for another week. Now what do you do? Uh, you now start the drug scene. Oh, beer, the mild one. A couple of uppers or downers, depending what your need is at the moment, and wine. Now, Solomon took good control of himself. With wisdom, he guided himself in this thing. As a connoisseur, he tasted this wine and that wine. Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Solomon went out and tested this wine one night in that restaurant, and, and, and another restaurant over there and tested a different kind of wine, white, green, yellow, or whatnot, and he tested this wine. And uh, he, he said, I stimulated my body with this. Of course, it soon comes to the day when wine doesn't work anymore, and you need the hard stuff all to discover that pleasant feeling, pleasure that is coming. And Solomon went the whole route. See? He said, I wanted to see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. And he tested pleasure to the full. He went to folly. Oh, folly is a very interesting thing. That means a nonsense thing. He went to Disneyland. <laughs> you know, I remember we had a young man visiting us from Africa by the name of Noel Gaiwaka. Some of you might remember him. He came here a few years ago. And uh, they, people wanted him to be sure to see Disneyland. Well, I happen to know Noel Gaiwaka, and I know he'd think of Disneyland like zero. But they wanted us to go, and they paid for it, so I took them to Disneyland. And Noel Gawaka walked around Disneyland with me, and we went to this thing and that thing, and on this ride and that ride. And pretty soon, Noel Gawaka, like myself, began to get a little bit tired, and he looked at me, and he said, when are we going to stop this foolishness and go home and do something? Folly. Solomon went out and had all the roller coaster rides, all the merry-go-round rides, all the so-called fun things. He played all the games that were available in his day. He tested them all. And then notice, please, he moves on to the next text, his pursuit of works. He became a workaholic, it says. Look at it. Beginning there with verse 4 through 6, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made, a, made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, and I made ponds of water from which to irrigate forests and growing trees. He became a workaholic. He used his wealth. Now, he didn't do this on a little scale. He did it on a big scale, out there 
he was just building everything he could, and he made a trum he became a great builder. Go read the story of Solomon in First Kings and over in Second Chronicles. Uh, First Chronicles. Read the story of Solomon and the things that he built. His buildings were tremendous. That's what he did, working night and day. Pleasure didn't work, so he went to became a workaholic, and he hung in there, doing it all. You know, there are a lot of people like that. Not long ago, I was visiting a family, and they were showing me their home. It's a beautiful home. And after they showed me this beautiful home, and it, it, was, a, it was a gorgeous place. See? Why, uh, then they told me how that when they were first married, they went out and they bought a little bit of a house. And they fixed up the yards, and they fixed up the house, and they got furniture in it, and it all was a lovely place. But they soon uh, sold that, and they bought a, a little bit bigger house. And they fixed the yard up, and they fixed that house up, and they put new furniture in that house, and they enjoyed it. Oh, it was wonderful. But they sold that, and they bought a little bit bigger house. They did the same with that one, and now they were in this one. A couple of weeks ago, I called them up, and lo and behold, they were out of that one and in the fifth one. Building, searching. But you'll notice, please, it was all very short. Vanity of vanities. It was very short. They were not staying there. It was not reaching down and satisfying their hearts, though they made a great deal about it. And then Solomon went on with his tests. You notice, please, that he went on to pursue wealth. It says in verse 7, And I brought male and female slaves. Today he hired, he would say, I hired men and women to work for me. See? And I had home-born slaves, and I possessed flocks and herds larger than all that preceded me in Jerusalem. Also I collected for myself silver and gold and treasures of the king, whatever that may be. It might be jewels, you know and provinces. He reached out beyond the borders of Israel, and he gained lands and, and built his kingdom larger. He had the largest real estate holdings in the place, the largest real estate holdings ever owned by any Jewish king. He had them all. He reached out, and he gained wealth. And the queen of Sheba came over and looked at him and said, this is marvelous, the wealth of this man. And then notice... Like so many people, they discover wealth doesn't do too much for you. Their next move is into art. You ever notice that? And he says here in verse 8, he said, I provided myself male and female singers. And he went into the art. And he had great productions produced before. He had great paintings made. He brought in uh, silversmiths and goldsmiths, and they made beautiful art, ob art objects for him. He built the most beautiful temple to God that has ever been upon the face of the earth. He did it all, this man, as he went into the arts. And then he did something else. He pursued sex. For those of you that had the King James Version, don't get shocked. It tells you down there that he got a hold of musical instruments. The real word is concubines. <laughs> Why they ever translated musical instruments, I don't ask me, please. But <laughs> the word <laughs> is he got concubines. Solomon had 1,000 of them. 1,000 of them. And they turned his heart from his God. 
and they taught him to follow the idols of the nations around about him and led him away from God. That is what Solomon produced. That's what was the end result of all of his search. He was away from God. He was walking alone with only the vanities of heathen pagan idols to support him. And notice what he says is the res results he perceived. Look at verse 9 through 11. He says, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. Notice he, received, he had greater knowledge, greater things, greater gifts, greater lands than all who had ever been king in Jerusalem before. Greater than others. That was his accomplishment. He was good at the competitive game, wasn't he? And then notice his own heart. He said there in verse 10, And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labors, and this was my reward for all my labors. He said, anything my heart desired, anything my eyes saw that I wanted, I went and I got it, and I brought it for myself. And what was the final issue with him? Look at verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities, my search for wisdom, my works, my pleasures, my wealth, my possessions. I looked at it all over, and he said, I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. Behold, all was vanity. And behold, all was striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. Now, don't misunderstand him. He didn't say he didn't have fun. He didn't say he didn't have pleasure. He didn't say that his riches were, were not, was, was bad. He didn't say anything like that. If you'd have asked him, he said, how about giving up your millions? How about giving up your pleasures? He would have said, no, because they're the best thing I can find onto here. But he said, I don't have any time to enjoy them. I spent all my time building this great empire, and now... My days are almost short. It's almost over, and I've been reaching out, and I haven't yet got what I want. I've been reaching out, and all I'm ending up with is a handful of air. He said, as I come to the end of my life, what's left? He goes on then to point out the progress of life as he found it. Look at it very quickly there in verse 12 through 23. We can't even begin to touch uh, some of this. The first thing you notice, he points out the excellency of wisdom. He said, so I turned to consider wisdom, madness and folly, for which man, for will the man to do who will come after the king accept what has been done. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. He said, I tried. He said, I tried and I found out that wisdom was better than pleasure. Wisdom was better than wealth. Wisdom was better than uh, concubines. William, wisdom was better than any of these things. The, of all of them, I enjoyed wisdom the most. It was the best that I found to find wisdom. And then notice, please, he says in verse 14, he points out to us the end of it, however. 
He says, I know. Pardon me, I'm in the wrong place. And the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I know that one fate befalls them all. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And now the wise men and the fool alike die. Now your, your, your bag may not be wisdom as was Solomon's. You may say that it's building for you. You may say that it's, it's searching pleasure for you. You might say that it's sport for you. But Solomon's trying to tell you what it's going to be. You may be the greatest runner in the world and have set the greatest record as a runner in the world. You may be the greatest basketball player in the world. You may have built the greatest business in the world. But when you die, you're going to have the exact same thing as the bum who did nothing and accomplished nothing. You're going to leave it all. And then who's going to take it up after you? See, that's what bothered Solomon. He says in verse 18, he said, Thus I hated all the fruits of my labor for which I have labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruits of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. He's pointing out to us, he says, listen, he said, though I do all of this, I'm going to die. And who's going to take it after me? My heirs. And who knows who your heirs will be? A wise man that'll carry it on and do something with it? Or a fool? Back east, you can go today and you can see those great ivory-towered universities. You know that those universities were built by American Christians, Bible-believing people, who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were built to train men to teach the Word of God and to go forth from the world to evangelize people and win them to Christ. They gave their millions for that. They worked all of their lives, and then finally at the end of their lives, they gave all of their fortunes to the building of these great universities. And you go to those universities today, and you're not even allowed to use the name of God. No one ever wants to. You can't even smuggle a Bible onto the place and have anybody pay any attention to you. The faculty is made up of men who sneer at the book. There's no truth at all. And the very purposes that those people plan with their lives, they worked so hard to get, they gave it all. They gave it to whom? They gave it to somebody who did not use it the way they wanted. They gave it to somebody that used it for nothing. Well, what's the end of it all? You say, is that all he has to say to us? Oh, no. Our time is almost gone, but I want you to see his real message. It's down in verse 24, 25, and 26. He said, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from God. 
He said, this is the one thing you've got to learn. See, these are the words, not of Solomon. These are the words now given to Solomon by the shepherd. He says, the first thing you and I have to learn about our life is that God gives to man his life under the sun. Whatever life you have, your desire to, for wisdom, your desire to build, your desire for this and that kind of activity, God doesn't make us alike. He doesn't give the same desire to all of us. But what he has given to you, he says, now that's your life. The IQ that he's given you, that's your life. The amount of dummies that you have, that's your life. The place you're to live, that's your life. That's where you're to be. It's God's gift to you. God puts you here. This is no accident. Before the foundation of the world, God puts you here. By grace are you saved, the book of Ephesians says. And not, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For, it goes on to say, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do those works which he planned for us from the beginning of time. Let's learn this. God puts you on this earth. God gave you this life. Now what are you to do with it? How do you start fretting and saying, oh, I ought to do this, oh, I ought to do that, oh, I ought to... oh, it's terrible. Solomon doesn't advise us to hate life. He did it because he went out there and he searched all these things and he thought by searching he would find something and it only drove him away from God. He says you've got to recognize that the life that you have is from God and you've got to accept it. Accept your food. Accept your drink. And recognize that your life is a good thing that God has given to you. Don't be looking over at the Joneses and saying, hey, they got it better than I do. Don't be looking over at so-and-so and say, oh, he has it all together much, in a much better way than I have it. God doesn't say to do that at all. God says, listen, he said, God, I gave you that life. Take it and accept it. Accept that life. Accept that life. And then notice what he says there please, in verse uh, 25. For who can eat and who can enjoy without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. You've got to understand this. My friend, who are these people that are good in God's sight? What's he talking about here? Well, first place, you know as well as I do that it isn't referring to us in our own work, in our own merit. Left to myself, left to my own merit, left to my good works, I'm good in the sight of God? Who's kidding? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It says, in the book of Romans we read, there is none good, no, not one. To whom then is he talking when he says he gives this good? To those that are good. Why, he's talking to those who have come to Jesus. And they have accepted Christ as their personal Savior. And the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has washed their sins away. And then God has taken the righteousness of Christ and clothed them in the righteousness of Christ. And he now looks upon them and he sees them clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
And he says, they are just people. They are righteous people. They are good people in my eyes. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever come with all of your sin to Jesus Christ? Have you ever let him wash your sins away in his own blood? Have you ever let him clothe you in his own righteousness? If you have done so, then you are one of those who is good in the eyes of God. He tells you that before the foundation of the world, he chose you, he knows you. You're good in his sight. And he wants you to know that he's going to give to you in this life wisdom and knowledge and joy. He gives you the Holy Spirit who presents to you and guides you in the wisdom of God. He gives you the knowledge that he wants you to have in his written word. And as you yield and surrender to the control of the Holy Spirit, the joy of God fulfills your heart and fills your life. And that's what God does with you. He does that to those that are good in his sight. But then there's another group. But look at the last part of that verse. It says, while to sinners he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Oh, you don't accept Christ as your Savior. You're going on in your own righteousness, in your own works. You're doing your own thing. You're going your own way. All right. God says, go ahead. Collect your pleasures. He'll let you. Collect your wealth. He'll let you. He'll even help you. Collect your concubines. He'll let you. Go ahead. And then what does he tell you? You're going to find out that you don't have them at all. You think you have these things. You think you own these things you've collected. You've even made your will so you can tell what's going to happen to them afterwards. You think that you're going to control it all, don't you? And God said, then there's going to come a day when I'm going to take away from you what you seem to have. And then you'll find out that in all your collecting, all you've ended up with are handfuls of wind. My friend, which do you want to be? Do you want to be those who come to Jesus Christ with your sin and he washes away your sin and clothes you in his own righteousness and then you let God begin to build into your life what he wants to do and he gives you the life he wants to have and you go on and you eat and you drink and you enjoy this life which God has given you, knowing that he will give you the wisdom you need, knowing that he will give you the knowledge you need, knowing that he will give you the joy that you need. He will do this for you. He will build it into your life. Is that your way? Or are you going on your own do-it-yourself plan and your own ways of sin? Then remember this. The day is coming, and far sooner than you think. And you're going to find out as you breathe your last, that all you have in your hands as the prophet of your life is a handful of wind. <laughs>